3 million years into deep space, the sci-fi podcast, Stories Out of Time and Space, its hosts, Scott Weatherly, the only Brit to have never seen an episode of Gogglebox, and his podmate, Julian Darius, an American who is actually fun to be around. Together, they are taking on the epic challenge of reviewing all episodes of Red Dwarf. It won't change the world, but it's still a better contribution than anything from Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. This is a bonus episode. This is sort of a, a between-season special that we're doing. We're taking a couple of episodes to focus in on something that's both dear to my heart and to Julian's. But before we get into that, Julian, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you, Scott? I'm not too bad. I've said that it's a bit cold outside. There's no kind of atmosphere and I'm all alone. <laughs> <laughs> and if and if they can't guess from what we're going to be talking about, we are going to be getting deep on Red Dwarf. That's the British sci-fi sitcom that started in 1988. Uh, well, really, I suppose, like, Julian, before we get into it, so what, Red Dwarf, it's been around, obviously, since the you know, it's almost been 30-plus years now. So how did you come across this, especially as an American? It's sort of, uh, you know, uh, the other side of the pond. Uh, this this dinky sort of British sitcom. Uh, how did you find it? Well, I found it on PBS, which is our, our public broadcasting system. Um, you know, sort of the American equivalent of BBC. Um, mm-hmm. And it would at night play. I mean, I still love PBS, uh, but it would at night play a few British reruns. And, you know, I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe preteen early teenager and i would sort of stay up most of the night uh you know i had a room in the basement by myself and i could kind of hide out i could watch tv late at night and i could read um and i loved i mean i read tons of stuff uh i can't believe how much i read and i would watch like all these old shows on rerun late at night that i would discover all these norman lear shows and I would watch uh, PBS and at PBS at night, I think it was like Saturdays would play, um, you know, I would just be watching it. And all of a sudden, like, you know, Doctor Who would come on, <laughs> you know, and then after Doctor Who was Red Dwarf. And so, I mean, my I- initial impression, I mean, first of all, you have to understand that uh, I had no idea when any of this stuff was made. Right. So, so <laughs> yeah. to my mind. Like I knew there, you know, it was, it was always, uh, you know, the fourth doctor stuff. And mm. to my mind, I knew that like doctor who had been around for a long time, but I had no idea if there were 20 red dwarf episodes or 200. And right. I had no idea if they were like, I just assumed they were really old or at least several years old. I had no idea how sh- small a series was compared to America. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> More than anything, these were like, I mean, like Doctor Who was sort of, uh, I mean, I'm more into Doctor Who now than I was then. I mean, what I mm. remember was just seeing, you know, a guy run down a, a corridor and thinking like, you know, this this idiot with a scarf <laughs> on his neck is supposed to be an, an alien, you know? Um, and it's the same corridor over and over. And, you know, I'd watch it, but I wouldn't get into it. And then Red Dwarf would come on. And I'd think, what the hell am I watching? Yeah. And, I, and, I, and it really felt to me like they were broadcast from a parallel universe. Like they were in English. I I could kind of, I could understand them, 
but they're filled with words that I didn't understand. Uh, mm-hmm. They're filled with references that I did not understand. And <laughs> I, I didn't have a framework for like uh, really comedy sci-fi that was this, like, I, I mean, I knew about Hitchhikers. I had maybe read Hitchhikers, but I didn't, I mean, this was something really aggressively, um, you know, aggressively strange, aggressively, um, you know, bizarre. Uh, and it just seemed to me like like my television was picking up signals from like a parallel earth where they spoke a little <laughs> differently and the shows were really weird. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I can imagine sort of a... As you say, some some of the references in this, there's even some, because this obviously came out, started in 1988, there are references in this that even I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, <laughs> it's of its time, and I've got no clue who the, who they are referencing at that point. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to sort of see that it's sort of, you know, it snuck its way over there. Because for me, I mean, um, over here it played on a Friday evening, uh, I think like, you know, between 8 and 9 o'clock, um, and it was part of that... Um, Sort of Friday night comedy thing. I just remember this thing being on, and they would do reruns and other things. But this was sort of uh, on the BBC Two, and there was other programs like Bottom and um, a couple of other comedy shows. But I would finish. Sort of, I remember finishing Scouts. I was in with the Cubs or Scouts, and just racing home straight after that to get home in time to see to get home to Red Dwarf. And um, you know the music. This, if you could, the, the opening music to this in particular. Um, of the later seasons, sort of from season sort of three onwards, um, is just so iconic to me. To me, that just the moment I hear it, it sort of takes me back. Like it's one of those nostalgia t- uh, switches that the moment it cl- clicks in, I'm back there and I'm like, oh my god, I'm a kid and I love this show. It's just sort of like you get all the feels, um, and for the same reason because it's sort of like it was it was mine. I, I mean, I was raised on sitcoms. Um, you know, it, they're, they're almost like a. There's a British tradition for sitcoms. I mean, I know there's American ones, and I've seen them, but in Britain, there seems to be that there's, there's like a working class sitcom tradition. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, way back into sort of the sixties and seventies, everything from sort of uh, Alf Garnet and, and, and Till Death Do Us Part, and um, Porridge, which was a prison set one, and uh, The Good Life, and, and Only Fools and Horses, and I could go on and on. There's all these sort of sitcoms. And they're all sort of like about this sort of working class, but they were my parents' sitcoms, and I love them and I enjoy them. Um, but Red Dwarf was mine because I remember my parents, as you say, it's aggressively strange. My parents were like, what, it, what are you watching? What is this weird show? What, what is it? And I'm like, shut up, it's mine. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, and that's, I, I just loved it. And uh, yeah, like you say, it, it just sort of, even here, it, 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 um, it was never intended to be a success. I think is the best way of putting it. So the BBC sort of put it on BBC Two, and it was never meant to be a success. They were like, "It's an idea. We'll try it. See what happens with it." And when sort of you get sort of season by the end of season two, they're like, "Oh wow, no! Like people are, are really paying attention to this show. Um, we should give some more money to it." Um, so yeah, it's sort of like it was. It was one of those. It's like the little sitcom that could really, um, and seems to have sort of survived for thirty years in different iterations and. Where others have sort of died and fallen by the wayside, so it's uh, it's always been there for me. Yeah, I I really dig what you're saying, especially about like how that uh, theme song from three onward really hits you. Mm. Uh, I'm the same way, and I I hate 
titles that have clips, right? I mean, that is yeah. so <laughs> lowbrow and terrible. <laughs> but, you know, when I get to that in Red Dwarf, I'm like, oh, these are all the clips from the show. I'm going to see this season, you know? Yes. And I'm so excited. And I and I, I totally have a an exception for Dwarf. Um, the other thing is, for me, uh, the end credits meant so much. That sort of mm. that song. And I remember I had seen several episodes before I could understand the lyrics of the end credits. Yeah. And I remember as I understood them, I thought, you know, like, I I want to lie shipwrecked and comatose. I thought, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is some like, this is some like crazy stuff. Like, I mean, I hadn't, you know, I, I, I eventually I went to college and, you know, did every drug I could get my hands on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was like, you know, 13 going like, who'd want to lie shipwrecked and comatose? Like, this is so <laughs> aggressively weird and wonderful. And, and that sounds blissful at the same time that it sounds, you know, insane. I just well, love that, that energy. Well, that's the thing. And one of the things that sort of, you know, we've sort of said it about other shows and other, sort of other films during the season of that, that idea of like, you're either on the train with it or you're not. You know, and, and those things that don't care. And we sort of said about films like Christopher Nolan films, sort of like, especially like Memento or something like. You're either onto it or you're not. You know, and that's and that's what the where the film's at. Um, but that's our kit with Red Dwarf. Like this film's this program. It, <clears throat> it on the surface, it's almost like it starts out as an odd couple thing, and we'll, we'll get mm-hmm. to the premise in a minute. It starts out as an odd couple thing. You know, it's a sort of two people that don't really like each other, trapped in a scenario where they cannot avoid each other. Um, and then they sort of throw their elements in. But then you sort of like, when you dig into it a bit more, you start to realise that, oh, no, no, they've got a whole commentary on religion and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the forming of religions around false information, around, um, you know, the existence of other intelligent life forms in space and, you know, the, the pursuit of that. Uh, they, they deal with sort of dealing with your own death um, and having to sort of like, you know, to live in an incorporeal way as just a sort of an intelligence. And then... Um, they deal with like slavery when you get you finally get Crichton and this thing of having to have a purpose and a, in servitude and you start to dig into it and you're like oh, man this this is deep in a really really like weird way of sort of being funny and amazing but it's dealing with some really odd I mean there's an episode we'll, we may or may not get into called Camille that starts to deal with inter interspecies relationships and like yes. when you're a, when I was a kid watching this stuff I'm like this is funny and it's weird she's a blobby alien and now I'm like oh it's really touching that Crichton like sacrifices his own like his feelings for, for the betterment of somebody else you know like, wow this is I shouldn't be feeling this about a sitcom <laughs> uh, that's got a, de- a defective android in it like it's it's yeah I can't believe how much sort of like uh, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor sort of like slipped into this sitcom and no one seems to have noticed or the, you know, the, the, the BBC executives never seem to notice. Yeah. I have a weird relationship to, to comedy. I, I find that I laugh more at, uh, uh, at Red Dwarf than at most sitcoms, which mm. usually don't make me laugh at all. Um, uh, you know, and I'm I'm funny in person, but there's something about comedy that, you know, I usually just like you anticipate the joke. Like if I go mm. to see stand up comedy, I'll laugh like 20 seconds before everyone else because I see what's being set up and I'm thinking, oh, that's clever. And then I laugh and everybody thinks I'm insane. And then 20 <laughs> seconds later, everybody laughs. And it's not that I'm brilliant or something, but it's like I see what's being done here. I see mm. the mechanism 
and I, you know, it kind of ruins the humor for me a lot of times. Uh, but I laugh at Red Dwarf. But I think, you know, what really sold me on it, besides these sort of like aggressive weirdness, and of course, you know, the British accents, the way it was coded for for race, you know, that clearly yeah. like Lister was something different. Um, I didn't know how to locate that within British society, but I knew that like a working class thing is being done here. You know, uh, you know, an ethnic thing is being done here. I don't have those reference points, but I kind of can see what's being done. But then it was above all, it was the fact that it's just a good sci-fi show. And there Mm. are so many episodes that if you strip the humor out, it would still be a really good show. Like you could easily adapt half of these episodes into really good Star Trek episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that's great. It's like, and you know, we'll get to the premise in a minute so we can explain to those who have never seen it. But one of the things that like Rob Grant and Doug Naylor were really keen on when they were setting this up was like the sci-fi should be serious. Like that that's never the source of comedy. Like the characters and everything mm-hmm. and the situation can be, but the sci-fi premise has got to remain um maybe not pure, but you know, it's gotta be a, a pure, proper sci-fi concept. You know, and, and and that comes through. Like, you know, some of the things they talk about and and, and they use um, like you say, you could, well, and they have done. Like, there's a whole parallel universe um, concept. Um, they go, you know, they have sort of the, the amount of times they travel in time in these. I've forgotten about how many times they go through time <laughs> yeah. in this. They use time travel in these first four series is incredible, um, and stuff like that. And and you know, it's uh, yeah, you could, and I think they have. I mean, they, I won't lie, they they do sort of steal elements from things like Star Trek, and then sort of sure. like you know uh, play with it. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's episodes, I think there's uh, in season four called Meltdown, where they go to a planet that's um, or filled with wax uh, or androids of historical, you know, his, figures from historical uh, Brit- Earth's history. Uh, Einstein, Gandhi, Hitler, Mussolini, all these people. Um, and that just to me feels like a like an uh, original series Star Trek episode. That's the kind of thing they would do, you know. We find an M class planet filled with androids, um, and uh, but d- yeah. Red Dwarf goes in a slightly different direction than I think <laughs> Trek would would have gone. Oh, for sure, um, and yeah, I mean, watching that, I think like oh, like you're you're that's one of the episodes that like most rip something off, and I yeah. think it it's ripping off Westworld, right? Uh, yes, before yeah, the yeah. current before the current HBO show. Um, you know, and I can see that now. I don't know that I would have known that at the time, but it's still, a, it does feel very Trek uh, and it does go in this, you know, weird Red Dwarf direction that no <laughs> other show would have gone. Um, the other thing is there's this theme, especially rewatching it, there's this theme of other copies of ourselves, whether it's mm-hmm. like big due to time travel or parallel dimensions or, or whatever, Characters are always meeting additional duplicates of themselves. It's amazing how often this happens. And one of the themes that had always perplexed me as a kid was, you know, that I've always felt that one of the key ways of testing yourself is to say, would I like myself if I met myself, right? <laughs> like there are so yeah. many people who you think, you know, you'd really hate yourself. You think this is all clever, but you would be so annoyed. Um, 
and to kind of think of myself like, you know, my moody elements, the, those parts of myself that would probably really annoy myself. I think I'd love myself. I think I'd be like the cat and just say like, you know, oh, I want to have sex with myself. That sounds great. But uh, but then there'd be other times where I'd be like, oh, oh you know, this is you're you are just a moody bastard, you know, yeah. um, and, and those parts of myself that I wouldn't like those that's like a useful diagnostic tool to like zero in and say, I've got a problem here. Maybe I need to fix those things. Um, and I always find those stories really interesting and perplexing. Yeah. And there's a couple actually, when we'll get onto those actually, cause I'm thinking of like R- Rimmer's interaction with himself is always fascinating. Cause uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of all the characters, he's probably obviously the most broken um, yeah. But let's quickly jump in with a, a quick overview of the premise, because even though the premise itself uh, is loaded with with sort of uh, sci-fi elements and things worth talking about. Um, so Red Dwarf is the name of the ship. Uh, it's a mining ship owned by the Jupiter Mining Corps. It's six miles long, uh, five miles deep. No, f- yeah, five miles deep and three miles wide is what it's supposed to be. They're the dimensions, I think, that are sort of a red. So this thing is huge. It's it, and it's sort of staffed by these hundreds of people, and the idea is that it sort of it goes off into space and it literally is a mining ship. So it's loaded with mining materials, miners, and and crew uh, for for Red Dwarf. <clears throat> At the bottom of the totem pole of all of these people is uh, <laughs> a, a second level technician and third level technician, uh, Dave Lister, who's the lowest ranking person on the ship, and his superior or supervisor. Uh, third level technician, uh, Arnold Judas Rimmer. Um, they've basically got the lowliest maintenance jobs, you know, un- unclogging toilets and uh, chicken soup uh, dispensers. Um, and so, yeah, they get the sort of the crappy jobs. And List is only doing this for the money. For him, and this is actually an interesting one because in the, in the um, original series, his, his, the reason for him signing up is never really fully disclosed. Um, it's just sort of like he joined up and it was a, to basically to bomb around. He wanted to just go, you know, to just bomb around in space, save up some money so that he could go back to Earth and set up his farm in Fiji. Um, right. Uh, with Lister. Uh, Lister. Yeah. So Lister wants to go. Dave Lister wants to go home. He's been bombing around in space. He wants to go back with enough money to buy a farm in Fiji uh, with uh, a, a pig, some goats and a dog and raise horses. Um so, and he then wants to do it with the with the girl of his dreams, a woman he's met on the ship called Christine Kachansky, who's a navigation officer, who in the original iterations so in the first sort of couple of seasons has right. had minimal interactions with him. So she's always been this sort of like just out of reach um, um, fantasy for him, really. But the big key thing is Lister, Dave Lister and Arnold Rimmer do not get on. They despise each other. Um, but the other thing is, of course, is that Dave Lister has snuck a cat on board uh, that should have been quarantined, or if more importantly, should never have been on the ship in the first place. When it's identified that this cat is on board, uh, the captain uh, d- demands to know where this cat is. Uh, it turns out that the cat is called Frankenstein, is, is not a Frankenstein male, is a Frankenstein female, and is pregnant uh, and is hidden away in the cargo decks. Uh, and when Dave Lister does not give up the cat... Uh, he gets put into stasis. He's going to stay in stasis for six months uh, and, and be docked six months pay. <laughs> um, whilst he's in stasis, Rimmer is uh, tasked with fixing a drive plate uh, on part of the engines. Um, he does a, 
a poor job. And because of that, there's a radium or cadmium, I can't remember what the chemical is, but there's basically a massive radiation leak that kills everybody on the ship. Um, and by everybody, I mean everybody. Uh, and so the ship's computer, which is a, a, a personality and a face called Holly, decides to keep Dave Lister in stasis for three million years until the radiation levels are down to a safe background level and he can be released out of stasis. Uh, the other thing as well to note is when the when the event happens, they are actually in the outskirts of our solar system. But for safety's mm-hmm. sake and protocol, Holly directs the ship out into deep space. So he's been traveling into deep space for three million years. So they are three million years away from Earth. Um, so when he comes out, he then asks, where's everybody? And as Holly says, they're dead, Dave. Dave, mm-hmm. they're dead. Everybody's dead. So Dave is the, Dave Lister is now the last, possibly, you never actually clear, but he's the last human being alive uh, in deep space. Um, but not to be left alone and not to be sort of, you know, to dr- be driven alone that way, but you've been driven mad. So Holly brings back um, uh, a crew member to keep him company, uh, the person that he has had the most interaction with during his time on the ship, Um as a hologram so holly and the ship can sustain a single hologram uh so he's brought so he they bring back rimmer who else to be his companion in this deep space and that's sort of the initial premise because it's the odd couple in space uh, but to really throw things up of course uh the cat uh, frankenstein had lots of uh, kittens those kittens went on to breed i have questions about that um mm-hmm. but they were kept safe in the hold uh, from all the radiation, and they evolved into a humanoid cat species. The majority of the cat species have jettison- jettisoned themselves off into space in search of Fushal, which we will get to, um, and the only ones that remained were uh, the blind priest and the idiot. And the idiot is known as Cat, a preening, narcissistic, uh, well-dressed Danny John Jules, or sort of just just the cat who joins them as it's hard to say in the first seasons as pet, as companion, as just sort of someone who's there. Um, Mm. But so that's the first couple of series, really. The first two series is Arnold Rimmer as a dead hologram, uh, Dave Lister as uh, the last human alive, a being that has evolved from the ship's cat and a slightly senile, demented ship's computer in Holly. Uh, <laughs> and from that point on, weirdness and comedy ensue. That's quite a long-winded review, but that's that's pretty much the premise. Um, yeah, and I think almost all of that, that's basically the first episode, right? Except mm. in the first episode, we don't find out why there's only one cat. Um, mm. The cat does reference that they have a religion about cloister the stupid, which is, yes. you know, how they've remembered Lister <laughs> somewhat absurdly that they, this would, you know, like religion has recorded something for three million years, but it's yeah. still funny and clever. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there are elements of this that are immediately apparent as a kind of like satire of, of Star Trek, right? Mm. Um, you know, like you see the food dispenser, right? You know, this is the sort yeah. of, food dispenser on star trek and you know rimmer's fixing it uh and uh you know there's a there's a next generation episode that's very beloved called lower decks that is focused on sort of the the ensigns and the underlings 
uh, of the show, uh, which Trek was always traditionally focused on, you know, the captains and you ignored mm-hmm. the red shirts. Um, obviously, that came years after after Red Dwarf and, you know, has become, you know, a, a major source of inspiration in Trek going forward. But Red Dwarf was doing it back in 88. These are mm. the lowest of the low, right? The, the <laughs> yes. lowest people on the ship, <laughs> literally. Yeah. <clears throat> At one point in the first episode, they referenced, I think, Lister says the only people that that rank lower than him are the laboratory mice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they are mm. literally the bottom of the pile. This is a work. These are the working class dudes. Well, uh, and- I do have to say, I didn't, you know, it took me a while to realize that they were still in the solar system, even though it's a Jupiter mining thing. It, it does not do a good job of explaining in that first episode, oh yeah, we were still in the solar system and we just kept going. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I, you know, that I missed even having seen this several times, um, but that was clearer to me this time around. Um, and I guess the only other thing of that setup is that the initial idea of the show is that they're sort of trying to get back to Earth not knowing if it's even still there three million years yeah. later or, or if humans are even around. Um, and that very clear, uh, very shortly, it becomes clear. I mean, and I think this is another important part of this premise that there basically is no life in the universe except mm. humans. I mean, it is it is a lifeless, sad, depressing, meaningless universe in which there is no God and there's no life except humans. And later on, you see other human-created life, you know, androids, genetically engineered life forms. But, I mean, it was part of the original premise that, no, we're not going to do androids, we're not going to do aliens. And as the series goes on, Rimmer is sort of, everything he sees, he thinks, oh, you know, I bet these are aliens. And it's a sort of running joke that he wants to believe. He's he's the X-Files, right? He wants to believe. Yes, yeah. I, mean, I think he needs to believe, doesn't he? Because I think, like you say, they keep sort of... The, it, it's sort of alluded to later on that he, he wants to find more advanced aliens because they might be able to bring him back from the dead, like give him a body in some way, like a physical presence, because he is just a... It's literally a hologram. He's, he's light-generated. Um, but I do like that. I mean, like you say, the first season, the sort of the, the episode where they find the pod and he's convinced it's aliens. He's doing like a full on analysis of the uh, um, uh, uh, the the pot, and uh, it turns out later just to be a red dwarf garbage pot that's been jettisoned and been in space, and some of the letters have burnt off. Um, and you know, it's uh, yeah, his desperation for these things and obsession is, is uh, it's quite sad, really, to be honest. Yeah. Well, and it's also tied to religion. I mean, when they have the first discussion of that, it's explicitly, you know, sort of uh, uh, Rimmer saying, this can't be a meaningless universe. And uh, Lister says, oh, well, you know, you believe in God then. And Rimmer says, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, I mean, they're yeah. both atheists, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, like Trek, it's an atheistic future, but it's it's much more wears it on its sleeve. You know, and Rimmer said, don't be ridiculous, but I do believe in aliens. And there is this way in which, you know, I feel like that sort of satires the um, alien abduction people, you know, the people who believe like we're being visited and what they believe is irrational in many cases. But it is they would say, well, this is this is science based. It's not a faith, but 
those aliens are going to reveal themselves to us and like aid our civilization or or whatever you know mm-hmm. obviously different people believe different things but well no yeah it's true i mean you know let's say he attributes and they, they play it for laughs because he attributes so much to aliens like say that, that, that at one point they joke that um uh, that time we used up all that toilet paper. <laughs> you thought that was aliens. Well, we, we didn't use it. Who did? And it's like, aliens, what, what were they doing with that much toilet paper? Like, I don't know. They're alien. Alien things. They could be doing <laughs> alien things with it. Um, well, see, that explains all the Marvel movies, right? Because alien technology <laughs> is just so advanced. It's magic. And, hey, they're aliens. They're motivated by whatever. Um you know, the other thing is, you know, I have to come back to like how bizarre and alien all of this was to me. Um, you know, to me, the term smeghead was, yeah. you know, which they use was no different than hearing git, sod, yeah. or bog yeah. roll. I mean, I had to figure out like, you know, I had to figure out from context what any of this stuff meant. My only reference point was like reading early issues of Hellblazer, you know. I mean, I, I had no other source for understanding any of these terms well i think it's, it's funny because a lot of it is just like say englishisms or, or uh, britishisms uh git is is a, a well-known and well-used uh term to describe people but yeah this thing this thing i think the thing is that they wanted to use um you know i think from rob grant and doug Naylor's position they were like well you know like I say, these are just technicians these are, these are sort of quite sort of like uh blue collar guys and they, they would be sort of talking in this way but we can't swear so we almost need to create up some slang and um, you know jargon for them to use. So they, there's a few things they throw in, and some land and some don't. So um, smeghead is, is is obviously you know uh, the 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 one that seems to have landed the most. It's so synonymous with red dwarf. But throughout it, like Rimmer, there's an episode where Rimmer uses the word goit about five times. He's just like they're really trying to sort of see what else lands, and that one doesn't seem to come back much. But yeah. It's it's very much, um, you know, full of these Englishisms. Uh, uh, that I, it, when you say that, you know, you're a fan of it, it's like, I'm assuming it must have come with subtitles at some point because some of these, like you say, there's, there's whole rants or monologues and you're like, yeah, that, that, that wouldn't translate much outside of, uh, um, you know, outside of the British Isles, really. Yeah, I mean, I never watched it with subtitles. Um I mean, like I said, there were references that I wouldn't get. I mean, I, you know, obviously class means something different in mm. Britain than it does in America. Um, you know, we have a different system. Um, I, you know, I, I could tell that something's going on there with Lister. Uh, well, the other thing is, I mean, Lister is a slob and, yeah. you know, 12-year-old me is like, you know, what the hell is a vindaloo? <laughs> you know? And, you know, I mean, I went on to Indian is one of my two favorite cuisines. And and actually, I quite love vindaloo. Uh, I can't ex- tell how many times before I got into vindaloo, I was into Rogan Josh because there was mm. a, there's a vertigo uh, prestige thing. So everything I learned, my intro to Indian food was all pop culture, right? But I had no idea what, you know, what is this vindaloo he keeps spilling? I, I you know, I had no idea what it was. Well, that's a, that's a good point about this is sort of like, as you go through this sort of um, Lister is, you know, it's an interesting character, but they've, they've sort of made sure that none of the characters in this are 
like wholly um, aspirational. Like you know, you. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Lister, who is probably the most moral and sort of he's the most grounded and down to earth and that sort of thing. Like, yeah, but he's still not. You know, you go, okay, I'm happy to watch him and I find him funny, but you don't want to be him. You know, he's, you'd, mm-hmm. you'd probably be all right as his, as his mate sort of thing. But <laughs> even then you'd be like, Look, Dave, I can't go out every night. Like, I've got to stay in and do something else. Um, well, also, he's smelly, right? I mean, his yeah. socks, you know, and everything are a constant source of humor. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know, I mean, who wants to be out with their friend and their friend has like 20 stains on their shirt, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> At some point, yeah. it's not fun. That's it. So that's it, and that's why I think it's quite brave in that sort of um, in that sentiment of like you know he he is uh, from a personality point of view like he probably would be a lot of fun. But like yeah, you don't you don't want to be Dave Lister like you know you, um, none of the characters in this are sort of like you know uh, aspirational. You know I mean that's fair. Dave has no aspirations at all, um, really. And so like you say. It's it's interesting that they've sort of gone for that, and that seems like a, to me that that always feels like a a British thing. Like you know, whenever I find that sort of, um, we'll get onto the American uh, attempts at this, whether in this episode mm. or the future one. But um, why it's so different with Americans? They sort of there's always seems to be um, a need to have sort of a, a central character, or at least a character that's aspirational or, or good, and and you know the good looking one or whatever. And you, you have that, but within British sitcoms, like no, we don't we, we don't want to. We almost want to hate them. <laughs> like if you if you look at some of the most successful British sitcoms, um, you know, aside from Red Dwarf, like they're never about good people. Like you know, Faulty Towers is one of those things that mm-hmm. sort of is lauded. So you know, but like Basil Faulty, John Cleese Basil Faulty, is horrible, like a terrible person. Yes. Um, you know, Black Adder, one of the most successful <laughs> and loved British comedies, like. Blackadder is a terrible person. I love um, Blackadder, yeah. Well, that's it. You know, they, they are brilliantly written. They're brilliantly acting. They're fantastic. But, like, they're never nice people. Like, even some of the softer ones. Um, there's a series of, sort of from the 70s, and one of my favourites is, like, Porridge. It's about a couple of convicts in prison. Now, that's not in <laughs> itself a bad thing, but it's the way they play the system throughout it, you know, and... The general consensus of that series is don't let the bastards grind you down. It's it's just about surviving in prison, and you're just like, yeah, this is cynical. Um, <laughs> you know, all the all the way through to like, yes, minister and yes, prime minister, where there's entire seasons about how inept and bad the government is, and we're just laughing away at it. Um, it's bizarre that, but I mean, it's in, in, inanely, inanely British, intently British. That just seems to be what we our comedy seems to focus on. We either like the, the underdog. Or horrible people. It's but <laughs> yeah, I mean, Very we, have, we 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 like parodies of the government. I mean, I think too much over here, you know, because mm. the parodies aren't very apt. They're usually just sort of governments inept. But you know, I'm, I think about uh, Philip K. Dick. All of his novels are filled with horrible people, right? I mean, people yeah. that are just filled with petty thoughts, and that's partly why they're so relatable. I mean, even if they don't act petty they have that thought and, and the novel what gives voice to that thought. And then they get adapted by Hollywood and it's like that character has been turned into Tom Cruise with coiffured <laughs> hair and, you know, uh, you know, that's not the same guy. But yeah, there's something very, you know, if not American, certainly Hollywood about that. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, if you, if you take... um 
you know, talking about the first couple of seasons, those those sort of those characters, um, you know, Dave Dave Lister, uh, Arnold Rimmer, and the cat, um, and even Holly to an extent, like you know, there's the, mm-hmm. there's the ship's computer, like you know, he has a personality, um, and they, they've they've made him sort of like you know, he's he's got an IQ of six thousand, but they've they've obviously chosen like Norman Lovett. Uh, with his sort of northern accent for a for a reason because it sort of feels it's and he's playing them a bit dim, you know. He says, oh, "I've got an IQ of six thousand. It's not that much. It's the same as sort of six thousand PE teachers." Um, uh-huh. And it's, it's, there's always that downside to it, isn't there? So it's sort of like you say, Dave is slovenly and um, aspirations. Like you know, he, he sounds like he should be good fun on a night out, but probably not that often. Um, but he has a moral center, you know. He has that mor- morality of, of things that he always wants to try and do the right thing. Um, so he's sort of like that underdog. He is the British underdog that you sort of want to support and so yeah, you do. I do want you to do well because I do want to see you to succeed. And then his contrast, obviously, is Rimmer, who is that sort of um, comes from a middle class background, but has clearly failed and blames and you know, but blames everybody else for it. Uh, and he's just angry at the world and bitter uh, with the world um, and wants to sort of play that sort of um, role. You know, he, he sort of he, he aspires to be that sort of military leader, um, yet you wouldn't want to trust him with a gun, never mind, <laughs> you know, an army. Um, but there are still times every now and then when you do sort of feel for, for Rimmer. Yes. Like yeah, they never absolutely. ever, they never ever sort of have him as just being this one note sort of horrible person. Um, the more you well, learn about his history, the more you're like, oh man, this guy is screwed up for a reason. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, you know, I sort of see him as sort of uh, wannabe upper class, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. as it goes on, you find out that he, you know, like his brothers were sent to uh, boarding school and he he wasn't. Um, so I mean, there was some there's some money or resources there that that Lister didn't have, but Rimmer wants to work within the system, and he has the personality of a you know a feckless toady, yeah. <laughs> and you know Lister has no interest. I mean, he's he's you know a stoner, you know, who just wants yeah. to have fun and make some money, and you know, retire to Fiji with a beautiful woman. Yeah, and that's it, and, and that's so. To me, so when I was a kid, um, you know, Lister was the character I, re- I enjoyed and I rooted for, and I still like him. I still like him, but as I've got older and watching out, I, I find Rimmer more interesting as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say I like him; like I wouldn't want to spend time with him or be him, but I do find him as a sort of an interesting character because his psyche is. Um, you know his his mental state is is <laughs> it's so scary. You know, I mean, um, we'll go through some of the episodes in a bit, but in season two, series two, there's a, there's the episode Better Than Life, um, mm-hmm. where they have the opportunity to do a, a sort of a virtual reality game that when you sort of plug yourself into it, um, you are literally able to do anything better than life. Like you know, it will give you everything you want, all your whims all those regrets that you may have had, you can rectify and do all this other stuff and you can lead that sort of life. The problem with it is of course that you could then, you know, it's actually sort of, it's alluded to, but it's never, it's, it's sort of more expressed in the novels, which again, we'll talk about someone that once you're in it, it's difficult to get out of it unless you're Rimmer <laughs> because, you know, 
for some reason, Rimmers turns on him and where sort of Lister and the cat are sort of fulfilling all these fantasies and doing all this, uh, having a great time. Lister, Lister gets, he finds the woman of his dreams. He, he marries this woman. And then within three hours, he's got six kids and a mortgage. <laughs> and then within a couple yeah. of hours later, the tax man's after him. And, all this other, and it just builds and builds. And he's just like, he's like, my brain like won't let him. He, he can't believe that he can succeed or do well. For all of his drive and need to be accepted and to be done to do well it like it won't accept his brain won't let him Mm -hmm. because he's so sort of his self-loathing is so sort of uh um so strong um yeah i mean he hates himself but i i think he evolves as the show goes on i mean mm. you know especially once you hit like series three he's still the same guy but he's a lot more competent in ways that he wouldn't have been earlier on um and, and I think that he does become more sympathetic. I, I think that, um, you know, he sort of starts as the toady who, you know, enforces the rules in a sort of draconian way. Um, but, you know, there is something very American about him in the sense that mm. he feels as if his failure to achieve sort of class status or at least success within this military structure is ultimately must be the response of somebody else. Although his inner feeling beyond that is really I'm terrible and I failed because I'm a miserable, horrible person. Um, And he hates himself. And I think that, you know, as an American, I had no idea who to root for or, or anything. (laughs) These were all just totally alien characters to me, but uh, but there is something about, you know, in my country, uh, uh, the sort of myth of meritocracy, right? That if you mm. if you haven't achieved this, I mean, which, as far as I know, the Brits have no illusions of meritocracy within their class system. Um, but, you know, in America, if you haven't achieved that status, which obviously Rimmer's brothers did and was sort of expected, um, he internalizes it that you know somehow i failed i i've made some bad choices and the truth is we all make bad choices we're all we all could be petty and and stupid but he has sort of you know i'm not saying he's a he's a good person but i mean he has internalized those failures as the explanation um and so his his options are to blame somebody else right Mm. or to or to say i'm terrible and i and i do see people I mean, you know, uh, I'm, you know, 43 as I record this. Um, You know, by the time you're that age, you kind of know whether you're, you know, going to be a billionaire or not. You know, and and if the answer is no, you know, or you know, you have you have friends who are who are comfortably more affluent than you, the question sort of comes out. Well, why haven't I? And mm. it's very easy to kind of get bitter and look at, uh, you know, opportunities that weren't given to you that somebody else had. So, I mean, there is a way in which I understand that in a particularly American way. Yeah, and I, I like the idea of that sort of thing of, of, as you say, sort of having to internalize it within within the it is within the British classing. I think it, there is that there is this sort of. Um, as as Rimmer puts it, like up the ziggurat, lickety split. You know this idea of sort of like self um, 
you can get yourself you can sort of like work your way up if you want to you know if you mm-hmm. if you try hard enough and you fit in with that next level of thing like you know sort of um uh you you can do it you can jump up a class at least one class you know working class to middle class or whatever like if you really wanted you could do it um and the thing i say um the thing with the with the two with, with, the, with the contrast is like say dave has dave lister's got no intention and no desire to, <laughs> to do that um if anything in a later episode he actually refers to himself as a class traitor because he went to a wine bar so he's sort of like you know he's very yes. much like a working class sort of like you know dude he wants to sort of protect it that sort of like thing that he almost carries it almost as a badge of honor um well where where rumor is that sort of like you say he wants to get up to that next level and uh, more than any other character, which is which is interesting as I watch it back on this, more than any other characters, like Lister, um, you know, wants to get back to Earth and he wants to see humans, and he gets that in a sort of in several sort of roundabout ways. But Rimmer actually gets the opportunity to achieve the things he wants more than you know on a number of occasions, and just blows it like again <laughs> and again, um, and keeps sort of like, um. You know, I don't know. There's just this sort of thing of him. Need, I mean, we go to the first episode, but the episode "Balance of Power," where um, you know he will. He is so stuck in that rigid system. You said working within the system. He's trying to get up through the navigation channels. He wants to become an officer. He wants to take the officer exam or the navigation astro navigation exam, and he keeps failing it like fourteen mm-hmm. times. I think he sort of failed it. Um, and so, but Lister decides that well, I can actually be your superior. Um, but I don't have to get the navigation. I don't have to get that. I can just go and learn to be a chef. <laughs> so he goes to take. He goes to take a, like the the chef the chef's exam, and 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 this to, River even says to him like, "Well, but you don't want to be a chef." He's like, "No, you're right. I don't. But I I can be your superior, and because you are so stuck in that ridiculous notion, even now that we're the only two sort of sentient human beings in the universe, in that system." Um, you will do as I tell you, which is lunacy, but it'll 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 make you do what I want you to do, and it's it's it that to me is sort of really tragic in many ways that he can't look outside yeah. himself. I mean, the fact of the matter is that even after everyone has died, and <laughs> you know the you know he, I mean you eventually sort of learn sort of like you know to sort of see that it's his fault when he feels responsible for that, but the fact of the matter is that he still wears his uniform as a hologram. For the first mm-hmm. two series, at least, like he is still tied to the world before the disaster, um, and the structures and the order and everything that goes with it. And you sort of look at yourself and you're three million years into deep space, like <laughs> you're the only two <laughs> sentient human beings, you know, within at least three million years. Like uh, you don't have to keep adhering to the Jupiter mining cause rules and regulations. <laughs> um. Yeah, uh, yeah, so I, very true. I mean, I, on the other hand, there's something about Lister that irritates me too, and it's not just his messiness. Mm. I mean, I like that he's relaxed, right? I, I mean, obviously, he's less neurotic and and just mad than Rimmer is. Yeah, but but he doesn't have any sort of um, aspiration. Like as messed up as as Rimmer's aspiration is, it's just to ascend this stupid system that doesn't respect him um there's something deeply pathetic about that but you know i would think like okay well i i'm alone 
Uh, mm. I'm out in space, three million years away from Earth. We may well be the last humans. This sucks. Maybe I'll I'll start to write. Maybe I'll start to do something. Maybe I'll you know. Uh, I mean, nobody ever decides to to do anything. Lister just wants to drink and eat curries. <laughs> you know that yeah. there's something. Yeah. You know, there's something I I can't relate to about that, or or that I find sort of oddly you know despicable in a way that that Rimmer isn't. No, it's true. It's it's weird because you're right. Because you know he is you know uh, Rimmer's a, a hologram, whatever. And, and so he, technically, he is the last, most likely that I mean, at least if it's three million years into the future, like you know, we'd have evolved in some way. So he's the first, the only representation of I think it's supposed to be sort of twenty first twenty second century humans, um, and there's no sort of like existential crisis about that from Lister. There's no sort of like yeah, Christ, I could be the last, I literally could be the <laughs> last human, and then actually that also means that potentially then uh, Red Dwarf as a ship could then in Tors also actually be the last representation of the human race. Mm-hmm. So all the not because all the knowledge, all the, there could be books on there. That, you know, I mean, this this thing's six miles long and five miles wide, or whatever. So it's a huge ship. So there's all kinds of stuff on there. Everything from, you know, like you say, the lowest sort of like form of pulp entertainment that's probably going to be on there. Um, you know, like when they remake Casablanca, all the way through to copies of Shakespeare and, and other things that are going to be on that ship. Like that is the it's a, it's a representation of the human race. And at no point does he sort of go, yeah, this is this could actually be really important, and we should sort of look look to maintain and sustain this. <laughs> no, nope, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm just going to get I'm just going to have a few t- tinnies and uh, like you say, drink, have a curry. Um, yeah. Like you say, so, he, so he isn't he, he isn't aspirational in sort of like, you know. So he isn't, he's irresponsible. I think is, is a way to describe it. Yeah, and there's something you know I relate to both of them in different ways. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, uh, like, looking at that first episode, and, and I did not watch them in order. I mean, I watched whatever <laughs> I got. But looking at that first episode, you know, I don't like really that odd couple dynamic. Uh, I find really, like, the first 20 minutes of that first episode um, essentially not funny and not mm. very interesting. And then... All of a sudden, everybody's dead. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. you know, the whole show just takes a left turn. And then within the next 10 minutes or, or eight minutes, everything hits. Everything is brilliant. Everything is surprising. And, you know, you were talking about these two characters. And I love the just sheer wackiness, the sheer meaninglessness of this, that mm. the human race is left with this guy who's got no aspiration, a hologram of the guy he hates uh, the most, yeah. who's, you know, a toady, um, you know, this cat, uh, this computer, none of this means anything. It's And, and it's three million yeah. years later, and, and we're alone in a meaningless universe. Oh, well, let's get on with it, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I just find this premise so delightful, and I find that left turn so delightful. Well, and that's it because it is. It's sort of if if I suppose you know when you if you if this had been a released to, today as a as a you know an opening premise, and you to keep keep this quiet, you know, and you didn't really know what the eventual premise was going to be, and you watch this from the from the from the start, you would you be like, oh, it's going to be a workplace. It's the office 
in space, <laughs> you know. Right. <clears throat> that's what you'd be. And then, like you say, but if you take the office and then kill everybody off apart from two characters, you're like, oh, <laughs> no, the office just became the Walking Dead. Oh, that's a real. That's uh, that's 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 a bit different. Um, yeah. Um, and it does. And I, I, I like the fact that it does that, and it it, it continues to do those things though, because it does. It keeps taking those leaps and doing those things that you're a bit like, huh, that's that's interesting. Um, you know, I wouldn't think to do that. I mean, like you say, the first episode, the leap from the first to the second episode is is out. Is is that's the first time when they sort of go, oh no, we're going to go full bore, and you better keep up because, you know, we're going to introduce things that may or may not land, but we're going to go full sci-fi on this, um, and that's what yeah. I respect about it. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, the first episode is titled "The End," right? How transgressive yeah. your first episode is the end. Um, and, you know, again, I mean, if I were watching this straight, I, I started with the first episode, I would think, okay, nothing, nothing's really going on here. But more than that, those the jokes aren't landing. That odd mm. couple dynamic isn't really funny yet to me. Um, but then everything goes crazy and you have this, you know, this brilliantly absurd sort of finale to it. And I, and I love that episode. But then the next episode is absolutely insane where you have, you know, it's called future echoes and you have all of these mm. uh, visions of the future and sort of predicting, obviously they didn't know if the show was going to be on for five years, let alone uh, 171. But this seems so insanely aggressive and ambitious to in your second episode, jump to this sci-fi premise and, show your characters where they're going to go in theory, right? Um, yeah. I think that seems so out of the box and crazy. Well, it's, it's funny because the, the second episode is, is, is caused so many issues with fan <laughs> theory and all this other stuff. Because you say, so the concept is that, like you say, they've reached, because Holly's also been accelerating for a certain amount of time and they're about to reach and break uh, light speed. So all of his runtime is basically coming to uh, being spent navigating whilst he slows the ship down, um, uh, and so what happens as they break light? Right, they like you say they start to see flashes of the future, and it starts a little slow. You know, like say it's a couple of minutes in front, and this, the, but like you say it then ends or it gets to, it towards you. You see an old Lister in the bunk, sort of like predict, you know, giving sort of information about the distant future, like having sons. Uh, he's obviously going to live to old age. He's got a robot arm, um, and uh, you know, even at that age, at like hundred, he's like a hundred and something. That you know, he plays a he plays a joke on Rimmer from the future. He's like, Rimmer, do you want to know what happens to you? Come closer, <laughs> come closer, uh, and then disappears. And you're sort of like, that's <laughs> I love that. But yeah, it's really <laughs> ambitious to sort of say uh, by episode two. Oh yeah, by the way, we're going to show you this. Um, that is never really going to play into continuity at all, but we're going to show it you anyway. Yeah. They um, sort of, they sort of play with it here and there. Um, but you know, I'm still a sucker for it. Um, oh the yeah. Other it's thing great. Is, well, the other thing is, you know, we've talked about time travel, you know, on multiple episodes and it's not consistent within this show either, obviously, <laughs> but, but episode two is this, is, a brilliant example of that deterministic version of time travel where, mm. uh, you know, which is so smart, right? So, you know, Rimmer 
has seen Lister die. And, you know, we're just like, okay, the second episode, it's like, I've seen <laughs> you die as a character. One of the two characters, right? The two main ones. And, uh, you know, he says, oh, you were wearing a hat. So, you know, uh, so Lister takes off his hat and says, I'll, I'll never wear it, you know. Um, you know, and he sees the cat uh, miss run down the hall missing a tooth. So he runs. He says, oh, how could this happen? He runs to prevent the cat from biting his robot fish that he's seen the cat yeah. eyeing. And but in the struggle to prevent him from biting the fish, the cat hits the wall and loses a tooth. So he's caused mm-hmm. exactly what he tried to prevent. And, and this is a perfect example of how that kind of determinism works. But it's presented so fast. It's so it doesn't tell you, oh, by the way, this is brilliant. Those brilliant sci-fi elements are just in the background of this accelerated fun stuff. Yeah, and that's why I think, like you say, the writing's so good. And and, and um it, it's that thing of like that at the opening episode, they're sort of they're getting the sort of the concept out of the way. You know, mm-hmm. like, okay, here's the characters, here's the concept, boom, right, we're off to the races. Um because yeah, that that the time uh sorry, future echoes, it, it really does um, play into that idea, doesn't it, of sort of like you say like the determinist future, um, and they stick with it for the first two seasons. They they really do try and stick with mm-hmm. it because um, you do you eventually learn that uh, who the the person Rimmer saw being blown up in the drive room wasn't Lister. It was actually one of his sons. And if the episode ends, this is episode two, like you say, this the episode <laughs> ends uh-huh. with a future echo of Dave Lister holding two children. And he says, you know, um, yeah, basically, hello, hello, everybody. Meet your sons, Dave. Uh, this is Jim and this is Bexley. And that's it. That's the end of the episode. And you're just like, he says, he says, how are you going to get two, two, uh, two sons on this? You know, how are you have two children on this ship without any women? So like, I don't know, but it's going to be a lot of fun finding out. And you're thinking, yeah, they're, they're setting up some sort of conclusion down the line on this one. They must be. Um, uh, but yeah, like episode two, they really throw they sort of really threw you in the deep end. Well, and I love that so much. I mean, it's sort of like that left turn that that first episode takes um, is followed through. And it's like, you know, episode two tells you, oh, it's going to be all left turns from here on out. (laughs) Get used to it. Strap in because this is what we're doing. And, you know, I often think, I I mean, I think it was true of the the Davies who as well, that some of the, the best stuff the best shows, especially that that pilot is important, but that second episode, like once you set up the premise, can you deliver a second episode that just feels like a gut punch that just, you know, really mm. shows what you can do and is the sort of manifesto of, all right, now we've done the hard work of, of laying all the groundwork. You, you get it already. Here's an example of what we can do in that second episode. And this just hits it out of the park. Uh, yeah, um, and and I think again, you know, from a storybook, and that's what they keep doing. Like they keep throwing concepts at you um, that, like you say, you, you end up sort of questioning. I mean, that you know, the the, the one for me is is that uh, um, episode four of the season is waiting for God. Oh yeah, um, that you start to learn. And again, it throws this to religion, and we haven't really talked about the cat because as a character, there's not much to the cat. You know, he is literally the personification of what a feline cat would be as a person. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love the fact he has a spray that he goes around. He's like, this is man. And this is man. And this is man. That, not that bit. That's not man. But, but all this, 
This is Matt. Like he's, <laughs> he, D- Danny John Jules pays him to perfection. Like he's a, oh, he's yeah. a, a, you know, um, there's not much to him as a character, but like the enthusiasm and, and the grace and everything that Danny John Jules brings is is perfect. Um, but when you start to learn about the cat species. And you realise, I say that they've they've based their sort of existence around this uh, lister or cloister, cloister the stupid. Mm-hmm. And you learn the religion and stuff, and it starts to really starts to poke fun at like, um, you know, the religious setups and religious war and all this other stuff. Um, you know, you basically find that for for millions of years they've been based on this thing, and his writings around wanting to set up um, like a, a fast food stand in Fiji. <laughs> yeah, you know that's the, the whole concept is the donut and the sausage. Um, so they have like the sacred donut hat, and that he carries the sausage. Um, and the, the, you know the two, there was a war. There was a religious uh, war between two factions, and you're thinking, oh my god, this is her, you know it's all held all within the confines of this massive ship over thousands of years over the fact that some believed that the, the hats were going to be blue, and some thought they were going to be green or yellow. And uh, or red, whatever. And even Dave says, "Wow, oh, that's ridiculous." They were going to be green. And right. like, <laughs> the ridiculousness of like that battle, and that's it. Like going to war over sort of like these writings that are millions of years old, which actually mean nothing, you know, really in a sort of in this universe at least, um, is is so well done. Um, yeah. But I love the fact, that, and this is one of the reasons I like Dave Lister as a character is. Um, when towards the end of the episode, uh, the, they follow the cat. Or Dave follows the cat into the into the mm. the ducts, um, and it, it's clear that the the cat has got no real care for religion. But you find the old priest, um, and and this is this when, is the only other surviving cat, right? They've all wiped themselves yes. out in religious wars, and here's this old cat priest who's blind. Yeah, and he's actually saying he's like, you know, he's saying like, Cloyster, I let you down. I lost my faith. And Dave Lister could have said, like, yeah, you're right. This is ridiculous. Like, you know, there, there is no, no shell. It's Fiji. It's on Earth. And, you, you know, you wasted your time on this. Well, he, does, he doesn't do that. He says, no, 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 you did great. And, you know, thank you for sort of carrying on. And, you know, you'll find your place in the great beyond and this other stuff. And, like, he takes the time to sort of comfort this old person before, they, before he dies. Um, and, uh, you know, gives, them, gives him, this priest, the miracle before he dies and stuff. And it's like... You realise that sort of, uh, yeah, he's never going to be, um, you know, he's never going to be a, a great human being per se, but he's actually a good person. Um, mm-hmm. And what, and that's again, like the writing of all this is like, yeah, it's taking, it takes jab after jab after jab at, uh, uh, you know, religion and how it sort of forms over years of, of nonsense. But still, they're going to sort of, they're going to keep those character beats and show you sort of like what each of these characters will and will will do. Um, I just, I just that episode I just find is really interesting, um, especially yeah. when you do find that more information about the evolution of the cats. Well, and that's not the only time that the show, you know, hits those points on religion. But you know, again, you know, I think the that third episode is a little weaker. But you know, waiting for God, that fourth episode really is another sort of gut punch of an episode. And I, and I think this isn't the only time where I have in my notes, like, this is Voltaire. This is, you know, Voltaire, you know, has that in, um, you know, Candide, where where you have these, uh, you know, you hear about these religious wars over the most stupid thing imaginable. 
Um, mm. You know, but it also sort of goes back to this kindness of Lister, as you said, that like, you know, well, he's dying. What does it matter? Right. I mean, if it is a meaningless universe, you know, enjoy your cat fantasy. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um he has some, you know, he will come across in, in different ways. Like I say, it comes up again later. Um, but again, like I say, you're four episodes in to your first series of a sort of, let's say, a six a six episode um, sitcom. You know, this is an 80s BBC Two, so not even your prime BBC One. This is a BBC Two sitcom about, <laughs> you know, some like the odd couple in space. And already, like you say, you've dealt with um, the, the potential a deterministic future and you know uh, the the forming of religions that have sort of societies have structured themselves around four episodes in and i'm just like this is when you're a kid though it, it's still hilarious like i'm still loving this show but yeah it's actually really um like you say hitting those notes isn't it of uh, of of really pushing the boundaries of what you can do and say with a a daft space sitcom Oh, I agree. And, and I mean, and, and again, like that goes to the best of sort of what sci-fi can do that mm. these sci-fi setups can probe major concepts that, that ultimately in searching for the other in outer space, we're searching for ourselves. And I think that Trek, you know, was able to deal with racism and, and things like that. Uh, sexism, not so well, but, uh, Red Dwarf deals brilliantly with sexism, I think, in ways that mm. uh, that still flabbergast me. But I, th- I think that, you know, sort of the best of science fiction is able to address these things and get at something. And Red Dwarf is doing that, but it's doing that in this comedic context, which, I again, this is part of why this was so amazing to me, that it could be, not every episode is that deep about religion, but you know, whether it's a presentation of a deterministic future that's very aggressive or, or whatever it's doing, it can have that weight, as you said, of sci-fi mm. within this absurd context. Yeah, and, and that's it. And it. So, you know, I mean, they're really sort of swinging for the fences. I mean, you know, if... if... <laughs> If you're a Trek fan and you you know you would come across this, or even like a you know other, not say lesser, but things like you know Battlestar Galactica or um, other other sci-fi shows of the time, you know, I mean, people are raving oh. about things like the, you know the Orville now, like you know no, no right. like <laughs> Dwarf did it then, um, and they sort Absolutely. of for me they 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 go out the end season series one on this sort of like double hitter. Um, that again, like, has this sort of like this this bravery of, you know, when I watch it as a whole now, like you, I, you know, I watch it with with you know, probably with rose tinted glasses, and there are some things I will point out as we go along where it starts to not so much adhere to its own rules, but mm-hmm. I watch it as a whole, like I watch it as Red Dwarf. But if you were to come at this as a sci-fi fan or as a comedy fan in eighty eighty eight. But you know, you've had all these like these these weird and so weird you know episodes to begin with, and then the the, the end, the last two, because it sort of plays almost as a weird two parter. Um, mm-hmm. Just sort of like watching this one, sort of really blew me away with how sort of they were sort of 
ch- challenging these characters that you sort of think, okay, with well, the first season, we're going to play it a little bit safe. You know, we're going to sort of, um, you know, we're going to oh, make yeah. sure that they rest the characters in. We're going to bed them in. We're going to try and sort of, you know, we want to end on a good note or whatever. But they they literally, they, they end with uh, the, this two. The two episodes are called Confidence and Paranoia and then Me Squared. And the simple premise is in Confidence and Paranoia, uh, Lister gets an illness, um, a sort of space flu, they call it. It's quite sort of <laughs> space pneumonia. Um, and he has all these hallucinations that then materialise in the real world. Uh, but one of them is this this concept he has of his own sort of his own self, if his confidence being this sort of guy who's brash and, and loud and, and sort of like he's all about your confidence, bigs you up all the time. And then you've got your paranoia, which is this little weedy person that's always going, yeah, but you're rubbish, you're not good enough, and why would anyone ever listen to you? Um, and these two people materialise and then sort of like you know. Uh, Dave Lister spends time with him and obviously starts leaning more and more into his confidence. And it's sort of, to, to me, you know, it, it's, it plays out well that his confidence starts to get getting more and more ambitious and starts saying to him, well, why can't you do that? Of course you can do that. Figure this out. And at first it worked. <laughs> and at the end of it, it's like, they, they, they say, you don't need to have a helmet on in space. You're the king. You're the man. Take it off. <laughs> and it's, it's hilarious. The guy who plays his confidence is brilliant. I, I fucking love him. I think he's hilarious. But it's this concept of like, if, if you actually start to le- lean into your own confidence, you need that little touch of paranoia to keep you grounded. Like, you know, it starts to lean into this idea of your confidence, can, too much confidence yeah. can be dangerous. Um, and you're like, oh man, that's actually, you know, this is, it's played out really well. Um, and so you get this idea of, okay, then you've got to sort of like tailor yourself and you've got to sort of, you know, reflect on your own behaviors and how you interact with others and da, da. And then, Behind all this, the whole point is he's looking for the the hollow uh, disc for uh, one of the under the hologram for Christine Kachansky because they figured if they reduce the power of the rest of the ship because no one else is using it, then they could support a second hologram. So he, he then finds it, and having had this whole thing about your confidence and your paranoia and having to face up to yourself, they then follow up with an episode where it isn't Christine Kachansky's disc he finds. He finds a copy of Rimmers, puts it in, and you end up with two Rimmers. Right, and then you so then you get Rimmer having to face up to himself in a, a a fascinating finale in Me Squared of sort of so you've had like Dave Lister face up to himself, and then Rimmer's having to do something similar, and it's just insane that they go into this level of sort of like psyche, um, you know, bashing for like the final two episodes of the first series of this little space sitcom. Yeah, I never thought uh, about how they were that they're paired, although obviously. You know, Me Squared continues from Confidence and Paranoia directly, mm. which, um, you know, is not true of any of the other episodes of the first season. But, you know, I think you're completely correct. One of the things that fascinates me is the sort of depiction of both of these characters, that these episodes get at their psychology in a really probing way. And I think that, you know, like in Confidence and Paranoia, there's there if there's something... There's something really kind of, you know, despicable in Lister. It's partly this obsession over Kachansky, mm. with whom, you know, he's spoken 140 some words, the computer says. <laughs> and, and he's clearly yeah. just he's fantasized about her. I mean, his whole plan for the future involves getting a, a stupid uh, donut stand in, in Fiji <laughs> with, with this woman who he hasn't bothered to talk to. 
And this, you know, while I think we can all relate to some degree to this depiction of sort of, I feel that confidence and then I go up to the girl and, and the paranoia sets in and, you know, you know, you see you're talking with somebody else or whatever, and it sort of throws you off and you think, oh yeah, she does not want to be talking to you right now. I'm, yeah. I'm nothing yeah. here. Um, but at the same time, there's something, uh, there's something extreme. There's something in, in, in both of them that I find, especially in the wake of sort of the, the incel movement and sort of me too, um, you know, going back to, uh, yeah, in Confidence and Paranoia, Rimmer says that he's part of a love celibacy movement, you know, and I thought, <laughs> yeah. is that not in, incel, right? Like involuntary celibate, right? I mean, <laughs> clearly like Rimmer, like eschews love, right? I mean, but mm-hmm. so Rimmer is kind of like a, a misogynist in an open way. Um, and later on, we see Lister, we see this play out in different ways, but Lister is, will say women are people, just talk to them. But then, but Lister also is a misogynist in his own way yeah. and is obsessing over this person who he doesn't know and is, is deeply, I mean, that's not well. No. No, and I think his loneliness starts to play more and more into that, doesn't it? And that, you know, it's clear that even if this was sort of, a, a, I don't know, like a passing crush or you know something that wasn't, oh, like you say, wasn't really um, in a good place to begin with, it clearly gets worse. Um, you know, when he's facing up to a future of being stuck on a ship with Rimmer and the Cat and Holly, like it's, it's almost like say it's part and parcel of this um this like say this issue um that he is actually willing to sort of uh like his confidence is sort of come into it but he, he just wants her hologram like she won't have a physical presence but mm-hmm. he just wants her around and a part of me thinks like why would you like you know you're accepting that this is a this is a godless universe in which you are three million years from deep in, into deep space and there's not a great deal for you to do with the ship, and you want to put somebody else through that. That's incredibly selfish. Oh, yes. Well, that's kind of, you know, like, I mean, there was the movie Passengers where, um, you know, the, the male crew member wakes up one of the female crew members in suspended animation, and, mm. you know, that only came out recently, and, boy, the, the sort of feminist criticism of that was incredibly strong. Uh, and, and I actually thought it was a, a fine movie and I think intended to ask those questions and be disturbing and aware of all of those objections. Um, and I think this is that same sort of idea of why would you condemn this person? But then, you know, you can understand how somebody would make that decision. And especially in this case, because you can always justify it as like, yeah, but it's a hologram, right? I mean, it's a it's a computer process. Which is another interesting thing that they fully treat Rimmer as a human being with no body, mm-hmm. even though he's clearly a computer duplicate, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's something that's interesting because let's say, as you, you said, that like, Rimmer evolves over time as a character. <clears throat> so, but Rimmer's dead. Like you know that that's that's sort of the thing. Like that the, the thing that the hologram that's brought back is a a computer simulation of his own personality, and he admits that himself. So, you know, so how much of it is him growing? Like, he has all of Rimmer's memories. He has all of his uh, drives and his neuroses, not clearly. So uh, 
you know, is it is it Rimmer? So, you know, I suppose you can get to that thing of sort of, okay, so what differentiates him from that pile of white powder that was sat in the drive room after the after the uh um after the accident you know it's clearly all it's still all him it's still his personality um uh, well in, yeah in theory right except there there are moments again and again throughout the throughout the show where another crew member's personality sort of intrudes <laughs> you know so so clearly like okay this is some kind of personality disc but However, it's being played by Holly, it can screw up, right? So, I mm. mean, there's no guarantee that. I mean, Holly has put. I mean, I don't mean to get all conspiratorial here, but I mean, Holly has put, has chosen Rimmer to keep Lister sane, um, yeah. and and this and says this, but we have no guarantee. I mean, except we've seen Rimmer in real life for the first twenty minutes of the first episode, but. Other than that, I mean, we don't know what Holly's doing, right? I mean, Rimmer, yeah. we assume, is is pure and and thus able to grow. But, I mean, I would not be surprised at all if they said, you know, this dim-witted uh, computer uh, has done something. No, that's a really good point. I've never thought of that, that actually sort of behind Rimmer is is Holly. I mean, you know, yeah, is how, how much intervention has there been um, and is there, I mean, you say that like, he evolves, is, is that a natural evolution or is that, you know, involvement at sort of like a external, um, you know, uh, forced evolution? I don't know. It's interesting actually, because the idea of the, the concept of the, the holograms is, is good. Um, and it's never fully explored, uh, in, in, you know, from that thing. they talk about him, him having, you know, having to deal with his own death. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he does those things, because um, he's able to give the, the other thing is he's able to give Holly instruction. Like he asks Holly to do things for him, so he has a sort of, uh, you know, it's it's although it's a computer simulation, it seems to be independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from you know having his his teeth brushed to having his hair cut, um, and you know Holly is then able to do that thing. Um, I mean, there's we'll we'll get into an episode in the second series where you sort of find out that the computer actually can take over control of his 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 body mm-hmm. um uh, so yeah so how much of it is is rimmer is it his mind and how much is actually like you say a holly doing whatever it is behind it yeah and i don't know that the show wants us to get all philip k dick on it uh, no. i don't think this is necessarily intended but it is you know a possible sort of conspiracy you know fan theory behind the scenes or something but I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, go ahead. No, go on. No, I was just gonna say because that, you're right. Because I mean, yeah, the last episode that me squared so it starts mm-hmm. to sort of throw that in because although they are both Rimmer, they appear to be Rimmers from slightly different. They are sl- they are slightly different. You know what I mean? There's the Rimmer that's lived through the isolation for a period of time, and then the Rimmer that hasn't. I think really, um, and uh, you know, so the, the Rimmer. There's one Rimmer that seems to have accepted it and is a bit, you know, does want to sort of go to sleep and and not too worried about revision. Then there's another one that seems to keep driving him. He's like, no, through the pain barrier when they're doing they're doing like star jumps, aren't they? It's, it's going yeah. grey. Um, and then he's like, well, we can get a couple of hours of revision and we can do this. And that feels like the Rimmer that you met in episode one, right? You know, more so than the the Rimmer that you you sort of you've got to know over over the last couple of episodes. Um, and so, yeah, it's that, it's that difference, even a, a little bit of time. Um, but like you say, li- having to live with yourself 
seems horrific in that in that episode. Yeah, in that episode. But I mean, I I would find it fascinating. But uh, mm. you know, it sort of starts well, and then of course, given his personality, Rimmer's gonna you know start uh, complaining and blaming each other, and you know, it really yeah. goes. It really gets pretty dark. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of the things they say to each other and start blaming each other for, and then sort of the arguments sprout out. And, and um, Well, at one point, one of them, you know, yells out from his quarters, you know, uh, like, you know, shut up, you distended rectum. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so vicious. They're yeah. so vicious to each other, which, of course, is also a manifestation of how vicious Rimmer is to himself, right? Uh, yeah, I suppose it is. It comes down to that sort of level of self-loathing, isn't it? That sort of initially the idea of being able to live with himself and uh, you know able to sort of like encourage himself and give himself that extra boost all the time. But yeah, eventually it sort of just becomes his own self-loathing that uh, um, takes over again and starts to push him, um, you know, push him down that like you say that dark track. Um, yeah, I, again, it, go on. Well, this episode also suggests, I mean, there's the whole like gazpacho soup thing, right? Which is kind of like a Citizen Kane references, you know, it's a joke. But I mean, this episode postulates, I mean, at least Rimmer believes that what ruined his career was not knowing gazpacho soup is cold, right? And so, I mean, he says like, I mean, I think we can all relate to the, the obvious haunting embarrassment that he has. But this idea that, you know, my life came down to this one moment in which I embarrassed yeah. myself, you know, which, of course, is absurd to some degree. I mean, he may well be rationalizing, but he may not. And, you know, he even says, like, you know, this ruined my career. And, in, in, you know, if only the gazpacho soup had been taught at the academy, um, <laughs> you know, which is very funny. But But then there's also this sort of like, well, this idea of, it's who you know, right? It's it's the mm. networking, and that's impressive. And, and Rimmer is horrible at networking, right? Nobody is yeah. ever going to meet Rimmer and say that's the guy I want to give a job to. <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah, you know, say, and it, it, even in the episode, like you say, you find out what a bit of a a, a pillock he is in that respect. Because at the end of it, it boils down to the two Rimmers. One has to be deleted, and they have a, a sort of. Uh, uh, I forget, it's a competition in some way to decide who's going to be deleted. And um, the winner is actually the 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 second Rimmer uh, is, is actually wins. So the, the, the original Rimmer turns up to the drive room ready to be deleted, wearing a full dress uniform with three medals on. Yeah. And it shows, I say, oh. the jobs worth of it that he's, he's wearing that. And you find out it's his five years, it's, it's, it's his three year long service, his six year long service, his nine year long service medals. Um, I think there's a 12 too. Uh, oh, it was a twelve year. Those are the only commendations he's ever won. Yeah, um, but again, like it just shows that thing, doesn't it? That sort of like he's the kind of person that he that he is willing to do that. It shows why when he turns up into a room, everyone just goes, "Oh God, it's him." Um, you know, it's, now, even to the even to the last, he sort of he can't get away from himself. Now he's not really deleted at the end, even though we never see him again, right? I mean, Lister says like. Uh, oh no! This was just a threat to kind of get you to confess. Uh, he, he, they'd, they'd already deleted the other one because they oh, okay. list just decided. So he actually says, he says, um, he, yeah, he gets him to tell the story, the gazpacho soup story, and then he says, right, well, I'm ready. And he says, oh, we've already deleted the other one before you came in. 
Okay. Um, it was just a trick just to get you to t- tell the story. And, but, but more than that, to tell you this story and then have to live with the fact that you've told us this story. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, even, so even Lister can be a bit mean at times. Oh, right. I mean, he's definitely manipulative. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of just sort of stray thoughts wrapping up the first season, you know, one is uh, confidence is depicted as so American, right? I mean, it's sort of like yeah. Italian-American sort of stereotype. Um, and, and that sort of comes back later when we meet Ace Rimmer, although he's kind of like borrowed from Dan Dare stuff. I mean, there's... Yeah. Am I wrong in thinking like, you know, when when the depiction of a, a sort of brashly confident... Uh, person it, it seems like uh an american depiction oh no that it's totally I, mean, I i love the fact that um he's um they actually say like he's the combination of two things i think it's sort of like what uh the um owner of uh dave lifter's favorite sports team uh zero g football team is and uh the personality of the game show host uh that he admired as well so it's like you say it's this a very sort of like he wears like a bright yellow check suit with a sort of like say the uh, uh, the shirt across the waist with the medallion. Also, like he is, uh, yeah, it's a very American sort of second car <laughs> second hand car salesman, isn't it? Sort of sort of thing. It's all sort of like brash and loud and uh, 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 yeah, uh, he, he's he is because <laughs> then again, but then they say the opposite of that. The paranoia is incredibly British. He's a very sort of like you know he's a, he's a British actor. I, I know from a lot of other things, but he's you know he's he's thin. He's weedy. He's very pale. He's got sort of like you know very black hair and sort of like it goes back to that sort of thing we said before about the British cynicism of sort of uh, you know <laughs> th- those characters are like Basil Fawlty and all that. That, that paranoia is is. Um, <laughs> so you know we joke about it being American, but actually the aspirational conference is that is that you know that Americans that, the American thing is what he looks up to. So, um, yeah, he is very American, but it's, I wouldn't say it was a bad thing though, right? In that respect, right. Or at least not at least not today. Well, you know, I mean, the American you, you need an American to to be so confident that he takes off his helmet and explodes, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean. I had a, f- a few stray thoughts. One was that, uh, you know, in, in the future echoes, it, it occurred to me only much later that in future echoes, Li- uh, Lister is debating whether to go into stasis. Right. Mm. And, you know, he says, well, it's going to take 3 million years to go back to earth. I should just go into stasis again for another 3 million years. And then, you know, I'll get to see earth because I'm going to die alone in space with a stupid hologram. I'm not sure. They just kind of drop that. I'm not sure why he doesn't go into stasis. Um, no, it's ne- it's never it's never picked up again. It's never sort of. And you know, you could even have like a like a, a drop line at the end of an episode or something of like, oh, they know the status the status pods are all broken, irreparable, like six three million years worth of damage or something. Like, yeah, they could have, but it, it never comes up again. Right. Yeah, and and you know, Holly can only sustain this one hologram. You know. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's just little nitpicky stuff that occurs to me. Mm. I don't care at all because I'm I'm sold by the show. I mean, it just works so much. Um, yeah, I, I have to say, sort of like they try to sustain the hologram thing throughout the first season relatively well. The idea of sustaining a single hologram because they do say that for me squared, like oh, we're going to shut down vast portions of the ship and all this other stuff, like non essentials. And all oh, right, right, I can sort of buy that. It changes a little bit later. 
uh, in even in season two, series two, it starts to sort of. I have questions about the use of a hologram. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. What about the uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is, you know, they although they didn't want to use androids in the first season, the, there are a bunch of robots that are characters. And I had kind of forgotten how much the Scudders, the, these two sort of unspeaking uh, robots, how funny they are and how they sort of evolve over the course of the early seasons. Um, one of the first things is I forget what what the uh, you know what I think Lister's talking to them and they're suicidal and they sort of pound their heads into the wall. <laughs> uh, you know they're always doing this, these wonderfully absurd sort of things. They watch movies alone. You later see. Uh, I find the scudders really charming. They are great. I like, yeah, because you find out the sort of uh, yeah, Rimmer catches them in the cinema, doesn't he? And it don't, they pretend to be working. They hold up uh, a different kind of brush. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and and later on, like you say, you find out that, that I think it's it's in seems it's, it's in better than life. There's a parcel that's from the uh, the I think, I think it's like the John Wayne uh, appreciation or the John Wayne fan club, and you find actually that they're fans of of westerns as well. Um, <laughs> <coughs> it's, it's them that's it's them that's requested that. Yeah, the scutters are great. They sort of um, they have a great personality, and they sort of they they get less used as things go on, but they have some fantastic yeah. moments. Um, even in 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 par- conference paranoia, when sort of you you do sort of they they again they they allude to sort of like some of the simple things that uh, you know Lister hasn't got a body, the cat doesn't really care about what's going on for a great deal of the time. Um, so when Lister's ill, the only things that can take care of him are the scutters. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Right, and so they try to take it. They try to take his temperature, but end up sort of poking him in the eye with the therm- <laughs> with a the thermometer. Um, and yes, yeah, well, so there's a, there's well, a what's really funny on. there is, is Rimmer, you know, beside him and says, you know, now now they have to learn. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. there's yeah. no feeling at all for Lister. Uh, Rimmer's right there saying, like, <laughs> we're going to teach these gutters to administer. You know, he jokes about a, a rectal uh, examination with a rectal <laughs> temperature taking. Um, you know, the idea of like the training those scudders is more important than your pain when yeah. you're sick. <laughs> There's a great moment later on when they sort of uh, in one of the future scenes, I can't remember it is, when they just say he says about the scudders, he says he's going to ask them to do something. So if you can't ask them to do that, it's when well, no, we, we haven't got a choice. He's like, look, he said that the kind of people you said if you ask, you know, uh, watch that cake whilst it's cooking, they will sit and they will watch that cake burn, like because they. They can't oh, think yeah. beyond that instruction, and I, I just love that they. But they do keep coming up as uh, as little characters. I think they're so funny, um, and it's such great. It's such a great sort of like grace notes in that in that first mm. season, you know. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that sort of that we haven't really touched on, we sort of sort of mentioned is is actually, um, you know, one of the reasons I think this works so well is the cast. Mm-hmm. Um. They sort of just hit. They hit the the, uh, you know, you say about the race notes and stuff like that. They hit the floor running, and um, you you do have quite a diverse cast. And the fact of the matter is, the most unlikable character in this is the sort of, you know, if you were to look at this from today's sort of uh, modern, um, you know, diversity window sort of thing, like they have got this thing of like the most unlikable character in this is the sort of like the standard sort of wanting to be middle middle class white guy. Yes, you know, absolutely. Uh, um, and the you know, and sort of like Dave List, uh, played by Craig Charles, 
um, is is a um, mixed race and. I think it's half cast, you know, but you know, mixed race. But he, you know, he's he's sort of playing. He's not, and also like, he's a strong Liverpoolian, so he's got a Scouse accent, so sort of like, you know, a, a relative sort of northern accent. Um, and then on that, you get Danny John Jules playing the cat, um, you know, in the best possible way as a full-on sort of like crazed narcissist, and um, he's so wonderful at it. Like each, I think each of them in this, and and Norman love it as well as the computer as, as Holly. They just seem to get their characters quite quickly, you know. They just sort of seem to settle into them, um, and uh, I, I don't think you know. I think I, I don't think they get the credit they sort of they should they deserve really for for doing what they do in the first series. Oh uh, yeah, I agree, and I and I think that, I mean that I, I like that diversity. I I am sometimes bothered by the black character being cast or the black actor being cast as like mm. you know. The fancy, the guy who loves to dance, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but I I love the fact that nobody ever remarks on Lister not being white. You know, it's not mm. an issue, uh, or being mixed. I mean, this is not an issue. Even Rimmer, who's despicable, doesn't bring this up, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I say like I say, race is never in it, and you know, it's that sort of like you say, you go to the sort of that Trek future, the Roddenberry future, like you know, race is 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 really not an issue in this thing and and you know when we get to sort of season two and you get the introduction of Crichton as well it's sort of like even not being human oh i suppose with the cat like doesn't matter like you know we're just we're just there for each other if we can even if we don't really like each other um uh yeah and but I, I think sort of like you know um one of the weird things about this is sort of like when they first met craig charles and, and chris barry like didn't really get along mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was actually some concern within the first series that, that you know it, it wouldn't work between them. Um, <laughs> maybe that sort of worked on the screen. That sort of brought the right chemistry. Yeah. But but you know it's interesting to see how it sort of played out in, in sort of real life a little bit as well. Um, but the one thing you say about uh, about the cat is, uh, from what I understand, like they weren't really sure what they wanted for that character. They'd <clears throat> they'd had this sort of idea of it being like this evolved cat. And apparently mm-hmm. they auditioned a number of people, and uh, Danny John Jules is uh, he's a dancer uh, by tradition. You know, by, by that was actually his job. He was sort of coming on as it, sort of trying to be an actor, but was uh, came from a dancing background. Um, and he actually turned up and just basically did what they what you see that sort of like you know goes ow and yeah. sort of like <laughs> shuffles around, and stuff. did all that kind of stuff. And they were like, "That that is the cat. That is perfect. Like you know, it, it's it's spot on." Um, and so I, I you know I like the fact that sort of in many of the episodes, like he's not particularly involved in the the main plot. <laughs> he's like a little side character. And he has his own little moments. Because um, you know, like when when um, in confidence and paranoia, when sort of Rimmer rushes in because he's sort of you know when Lister's ill, he's like, uh, you know, he's like Lister's Lister's sick. You've got to come and help. And he's like, oh, that's a shame. I yeah. eat lunch. <laughs> and it, it takes him sort of like several minutes to come up and help. And in fact, I don't think he does actually. I think it's in, no. like I say, the scut the scutters have to come and help, isn't it? Yeah, um, and, and in fact, uh he pretends to get up several times yeah. and, and Rimmer keeps coming back and, and the camera goes, Oh, you know, and gets up and, and finally Rimmer comes back and says, you know, now you know, ask yourself, he, Lister's lying there, unconscious. We yeah. clearly ill, you know, and you are eating. 
you know, which of these things do you think is more important? And the cat says, like, yeah. I can't believe you we would even ask that. Of course. Yeah. My yeah. <laughs> you know. But but I like the fact that within that moment, like, you know, the cat become the cat and Lister become quite good friends with it. We always rip on we always rip on yeah. Rimmer. But the fact of the matter is, Rimmer is rushing around looking to help a very sick um Dave Lister. And it's right. actually the cat that's like, no, I'm I'm busy. I've got I've got my lunch, and then I'm, I'm scheduled for a nap. Actually, so uh, no, um, so you know, taking the conspiratorial sort of sense that maybe is is how much is is Holly behind it, um, it does go to show that actually, like Rimmer does have a side of like he, he is looking to look after, um, you know, Dave Lister. Yeah. Uh, so there's little moments like that that I do really appreciate. Yeah, I had that had never occurred to me, and I, but you're absolutely right. I mean, taken objectively, that cat is a much worse person, right? I mean, yeah. He, yeah. Like, clearly he is a total narcissist in a way that uh, that Rimmer's not. You know, Rimmer is obviously self obsessed, has a Napoleon complex, quite literally, admires Napoleon, <laughs> and this is always a running joke. But uh, but the cat, you know, and I think that. Partially, he's supposed to be an evolved cat, right? So we mm. sort of give him an excuse. But also, I think uh, he steals the show in in every mm. scene he's in, especially in the first uh, couple seasons. Um, that and and he's just so charming. He's sort of he's the devilish character who you just find charming so much so that you don't even notice. Like, yeah, of course he's a total narcissist. He just seems honest. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I'm eating food right now. Right now, this is the most important thing to me. It's not that I don't care about Lister, yeah. but I'm eating right now. How do you not get that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You do yeah. you, and man. It, that, well, that's it. Like, see, well, it, uh, he becomes slightly more self-aware as the sort of the the seasons progress. Um, Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be an annoying little smegger and cut in right there. These episodes have been so big that we're actually going to have to cut in and have them released on a weekly schedule. So don't you worry, there will be more Red Dwarf epic analysis from myself and Julian. We'll be back next week talking Series 2 and then beyond that, the rest of the franchise. We are going to be talking about... All of the series, the American pilots, we're going to mention the magazines, the novels, everything you can think of. So sit back and relax and wait, and I'll see you next week. But in the meantime, if you want to come back and you want to talk to Julian or I about Red Dwarf or about any of our shows, come find us on Twitter at Pod Time Space. We love to talk to our fans, so please reach out. And we'll see you next week. Same dwarf time, same dwarf channel.